Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist Podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences, and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years' experience of mental health, disability, and human behavior. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist Podcast. Um, I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and today I'm super duper delighted, can I say that, um, to have someone I've known a little while, Dr. Susan Bialy Hass with me, who is a Canadian doctor and specializes in burnout. And I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about who she is and what she does. Ah, I am. I'm so excited to be here. As I was saying a moment ago, technically we've known each other since I think it was March 2020 when we were asked to be on the BBC World Service to talk about mental health in the early days of the pandemic. And so it's just so exciting after connecting over social to actually sort of see you face to face because we are on video, even though people won't be able to see that. So I'm just really, really excited to see what you're doing. The topic of adversity is, is just so important right now. And and as for me, I am a medical doctor. I started my training originally in the ER, but actually switched specialties because I experienced severe burnout and depression and trauma-related symptoms during that training. And so went on to become just a regular primary care physician. But on the side, I developed this deep, deep passion for understanding mental health and burnout prevention, stress reduction, resilience, all from a whole human perspective, because I really hadn't gotten that during my medical training. And so as I was practicing as, practicing as a physician on the side, I was, I was writing, I was starting to speak to organizations, and now I actually do this full time. So I'm executive coach as well. I'm just so passionate. Well, we both are passionate about about really helping people to improve their lives and on a large scale beyond the one-to-one that we also do in our clinical practices. It's that, isn't it, as well? It's the going beyond, we like one-to-one work, but you can Mm -hmm. reach so many more people, can't you? Yeah. um, I always think there's something quite empowering about that as well, that you'll be able to help people to kind of learn a little bit more about their own well-being and what they can do. Oh, yes. Yes. And it's what, as a physician, I had so little time with people and I found it so frustrating because usually it was things like stress or their life circumstances that were massive contributors to whatever health challenges they were having, but I did not have the time to address those. And, And that's why I started coaching initially was because I could have an hour with people every week and and really start to make a real difference in their lives. And then the more that I did that, the more that I was convinced that so many of these things, they don't have to be communicated in a one-on-one situation. People can learn them. And that that's actually what my book, The Resilient Life, is for. It's a it's an inexpensive way for people to access most of the very best things that I've learned over the last 20 plus years. And and so I just want as many people to access the information that can empower them and educate them as possible. And it's that, is it? So you have a fantastic new book out. Been working my way through it <laughs> over here in the UK. It's waiting for my little parcel to arrive, which has cheered me up no end. So we're going to talk a little bit about that because what I really liked about your book is I do read and digest a lot of books, is that 
you can retain it really easily. I think I gave oh, you a bit good. of feedback, didn't I? Um, that, you know, to somebody, if you are overwhelmed, sometimes just reading things can be hard, taking it in, oh, retaining totally. it, <laughs> and then using yeah. it. So there's a whole process, yeah. isn't there? A psychological process there. Um, but for people listening, let's talk a little bit then about what is stress in this modern world? So during the pandemic, we've both done a lot of media work, haven't we? That word has been thrown around. But to a listener, somebody listening now, what, what is stress and, and how does it show up in this modern world? If you can answer that in one, oh, wow. <laughs> one go. So stress. Interesting. I don't know that I actually have like a one sentence definition for stress, but but what people don't necessarily understand is it's actually, I would say, a form of input or stimulation that comes to you from external sources. And it also is magnified, obviously, by how we perceive it and the narratives we have in our minds about it. But it's not necessarily, it's actually not a bad thing, which a lot of people don't really understand that. Like we actually need a basic level of stress in our lives to function well. We don't do well if we have no stress or stimulation. Actually, humans will really deteriorate. And so there's this Yerkes-Dodson kind of curve, they, they call it in science, where you have a peak where you're actually getting the optimum amount of stress to put you into a peak performance level. Uh, for example, uh, my sister is a is a quite a well-known performing artist and she she texted me before a big show that she had on Saturday and and she was saying, "Oh, I'm really nervous." And I said, "Great, because it will give you that edge. You will perform like much better than if you actually don't feel nervous." However, with a question of overwhelm, there is a point at which stress becomes toxic when your your own resources that you have, whether external resources you have access to or internal resources and your health, all of that um, can no longer meet the demands of the stress. And then you start to get pushed over into um, mental health challenges, physical health challenges, and, and not being able to perform in your life. And obviously, there's a spectrum within that as well in terms of, you know, a little bit of overwhelm or a lot. So I hope that answers your question to some degree. I don't think I addressed the modern world, but certainly in the modern world, we're experiencing unprecedented amounts of it, I would say. Yes. Yeah. That kind of difference. I'm guessing, I don't want to bring the P word in, but we're going to have to, but, you know, prior to the pandemic, we're all kind Mm. of ticking along or muddling along as the Brits would say, but overnight suddenly our lives literally changed and for many of us we had to learn how to suddenly work online or how we're going to work even how to homeschool yeah. how to look after our bodies and our minds when we're in lockdowns and facing fear for some people and uncertainty about the covid um virus and I'm just thinking about you know in this modern world now what are we dealing with how have things changed because when I grew up I never really heard of the word stress much or overwhelm or burnout they seem to be more modern words and I'm just thinking what is it we're dealing with as a society now or uh, as a concept of overwhelm burnout I think some of it is a awareness there's no question that we are taxed and exposed to stimuli yeah. in ways that we weren't before. The the term burnout was actually coined by Herbert, I think it's Freudenberger, in 1976, I think it was. So it was actually quite a long time ago. And then also Christina Maslach, who is the top researcher in the world in the field of burnout, she also started really digging into the topic not that long after that, I don't think. So there has been research in it and awareness of it. Freudenberger originally was looking at healthcare professionals and they thought that that was the only place where burnout existed was in people who 
served others. But now we, of course, know yes. that it it's, can apply in any context of chronic work-related stress. But this, yeah, today's world, I think especially since the pandemic hit, there it just feels like there's one thing after another and we and we never really get to catch our breath. Like even right now, the area that I'm in in Canada, actually the whole country is being hit by this huge wave of flu and respiratory viruses in children. Right. Yes. And everyone is sick and hospitals are still overwhelmed, but now with other things. And there's just this sense that we're we're not getting to catch our breath. And and it is a reality of our lives. And obviously the financial stress and inflation and and work overload and heavy workloads that we see across all sectors, that really hasn't changed. And that's been now for years. And so yes. it, it is really our new normal. And I think that's why this topic is so important because we we can't keep waiting for it to just settle down because you know, hopefully it all will, but it may not. And, and we need to have new skills to to be able to live in in this new world and that so over in the uk actually so we're facing something similar we have um scarlet fever at the moment um doing the rounds in primary schools and one of the things that i've been looking at a lot recently is again this give us a break kind of phenomenon you know we've had the cost of living crisis war in ukraine we had Mm -hmm. terrible terrible floods all through last winter and a lot of people expecting to have that again we've almost got i do a bit of work for the british red cross and one of the things they were saying is that now they're just expecting the next thing rather than wondering Mm -hmm. if there will be a next thing Mm -hmm. so it's that not not getting a break that overwhelm that people are experiencing and one of the other things I've also found is working with people who are still hybrid working still working at home is there still is a little bit of that mentality that we can squeeze this many zooms in people aren't having those normal breaks of walking to get some lunch you know and there isn't the pause um, and yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, is there something about technology yeah. and the never-ending world events that we're oh. dealing with? That are yeah, no inc- question. Leading, yeah, to increase yeah. rates of burnout. So what might people look out for? Probably sounds like a really silly question. So if someone no. listening thinks, actually, how would I know? Well, maybe, I don't know whether there's something about early signs people can look for. Of what, yeah. what, how could we define what overwhelm may look like? I know there's not one size fits all. Now, overwhelm or burnout? I'm thinking overwhelm, like maybe those kind of mm. earlier signs yes, that people yes. might be able to spot when things maybe aren't going that well. Yes. So so burnout, of course, is an actual clinical syndrome for which there are diagnostic criteria, even though it's not yes. a formally diagnosable mental health disorder, as of course you're aware. Now, overwhelm is more of a colloquial general term. But what I would say, not directly tying it to symptoms of burnout per se, but just how to know when you're overwhelmed. I'd say one is when you have a persistent feeling of tension or stress in your body and mind that just doesn't go away. Like if you're constantly yes. just feeling really on edge or 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 wired. I know for me, I will sometimes tip over into that sort of state where I can't seem to relax. Yes. And that's yeah. a that's a warning sign. That's an early warning sign for me that I've that I've got to start finding ways to calm my physiology down and calm my mind down um, so that it doesn't get entrenched. And also things like your your memory not working like it used to or or mixing up things, dropping balls. 
that's yes. a that's a sign for me. Like I actually had something happen on the weekend. I've had a lot of things going on in my life and have been under an unprecedented amount of stress in the last few months. Ironically, when my resilient life book comes out, everything just went yes, haywire, of course. Yes. And and I was trying to get into the garbage room in my building, and and I was like, it's not working, it's not working. And I couldn't get in. And I actually went and found the building superintendent for help. And when he came down with me, I realized I had been putting my fob on the wrong, the wrong thing. Right. And I've lived yeah. here for you years. Yeah. So those little things where it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> it's like that is a sign to me. It's like I think that I'm doing great, but when those little things happen, or let's say if someone were to have an important appointment and you forget it, or you double book yourself or something, like you just are starting to lose control of the details of your life and your calendar, things like that. When you have those moments, I was tempted to actually really beat up on myself. I was quite embarrassed. In fact, I pretended that I I didn't even tell him that I'd been using the wrong box. I was like, oh, look, it's working now. And I just wanted to die inside. Which is understandable. (laughs) Yes. And I was really, I was quite frustrated with myself for having wasted his time and what's wrong with me. But then, then I said to myself, wait a minute. What I need right now actually is rather than beating myself up, I need compassion for myself and I need to recognize that this is a sign that I need to step back and I need to take better care of myself and I need to see what even commitments I can let go of in the next week. And I started to make plans immediately. How can I take pressure off of myself and started actively looking? And so that's a really practical, proactive, truly helpful way of what I'd like to think of approaching those signs of overwhelm rather than spinning into more worry or angst around it to actually go, okay, I've noticed this. How can I support myself better? What can I do? That's very, I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is about kind of noticing Ah, and and naming, which is often the bit we bypass. We go straight into doing sometimes because it's hard to sit with tricky stuff, isn't it? Yes. Um, But just the power then of being able to just lean and go, what is this? Even though sometimes Mm -hmm. there may be a bit of guilt or shame or embarrassment attached to, you know, Mm -hmm. messing up your diary, using the wrong fob on the wrong door. We've all done that. I've done it recently. (laughs) My diary and thought, crikey, I've got two names in the same slot. This is (laughs) not like me. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and all the normal mechanisms can kick in. Well, it can't be my fault. Something else must have happened. But being able to lean in and go, actually, this may be a sign something's not right mm-hmm. um, and then coming back to what we were talking about earlier just how empowering that is to be able to start to implement things for yourself as well yeah um, and I really like empowering people to be able to recognize and implement and sometimes we might need more professional help we might need to oh absolutely to, yeah you know increase our knowledge but getting that balance I think is really important so let's talk burnout then mm-hmm. so this is something I'm reading more and more about. I don't know if it's because I'm looking for it now, but I'm sure it's talked about more since the pandemic. Yes. Oh, um, yes, yeah. Um, it's hard as a psychologist to know sometimes whether we're noticing things or not sometimes because we're quite often absorbing different articles and media things. What to you defines burnout there? Because I quite often get asked by patients or in talks, what's the difference then between signs of overwhelm and, and burnout? Because sometimes they're used interchangeably, those terms. yeah. Yeah, that's why in the work that I do and I I teach about burnout, I write about burnout, I speak to organizations all the time about burnout. Yes. And that's how yeah. I know that interest has just skyrocketed because the number of invitations I have to speak really? on that topic, yeah. I, yeah. I've lost track of by what factor it's multiplied. It's probably 10 or more. It's There's a oh, huge surge wow. of interest, which is actually really great because 
it also signifies that even though there is a problem, also organizations are wanting to support their people and educate them yes. around it. So that's great. And that's what we're doing here as well. So to answer your question, so burnout, as I mentioned earlier, refers to something very specific, even though, though the word gets thrown around a lot. And I, I believe the media quite often uses it just more of a general term without yes. defining yeah. it properly. So most people in the field generally agree even though there there are some other opinions around it. But generally, it's agreed upon that there are three fundamental components that all three need to be present for burnout to be present. So the first right. is emotional exhaustion, which is can also be a, a paired with a kind of physical exhaustion, but just really feeling like your tank is completely empty. You wake up in the morning, you have no idea how you're going to get through your day. Your weekend doesn't refresh you. Uh, so Now, there is a lot yes. of overlap with depression and depression, of course, can have similar symptoms. And there are some experts who actually think that burnout is a variant of depression. So so I always say people don't want to go diagnosing themselves. And definitely if people are extremely exhausted, the first thing is to actually see your doctor and make sure that there isn't some medical cause. Because a friend of mine, for example, thought that she was severely burned out. She had good reason to be, but it turned out she had iron deficiency anemia. So thank goodness she went to her doctor first because no amount of vacationing or coaching would have helped her blood to recover from the lack of iron. So so emotional exhaustion paired with physical exhaustion. And the second criteria is cynicism and depersonalization. So that's a real shift in your personality with respect to how you experience and feel about your job. So increased feelings of negativity and resentment, um, complaining, a depersonalization would mean that if you're someone who, for example, works with the public, that you start to see them as irritants, as as just right. obstacles to get through, yes. to get through your day versus being people and humans. And there's a real shift in how you feel about your job and feel about the people that you interact with, can, which can be quite alarming to people, especially if you're a real pe- people person. Yes, so, I was just thinking that, yeah. 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 So people often have a lot of relief, actually, to realize, oh my goodness, there actually really isn't anything wrong with me. I haven't fundamentally changed. I'm not a bad person. This is just what naturally happens to the human brain and personality when we just under way too much chronic work-related stress. And then the third component is a decreased is decreased productivity and e- efficacy. And then also people will have a decreased sense of confidence sometimes as well in their ability to do their job. Like maybe you felt for a long time that you were really well suited to the work that you do, but all of a sudden you're just not able to perform at the same level and you're really starting to doubt whether you're even in the right place. And people often hire me for help quitting because they're actually burned out. And then when we work on changing some of the dynamics in their workplace, changing the way they look after themselves, changing the way they think about their work, boundaries, lots of things – the majority of people I coach actually end up staying in their jobs because they actually were in the right place. It was just the burnout speaking. Isn't that interesting? So I'm just thinking as a psychologist then that at times that inner critic, that perfectionist inner critic just rocks up and says, hey, you know, good at this or, you know, yeah. praising you some way. And yeah. it might lead to kind of action that actually is ineffective or maybe inappropriate. Then oh, totally. In terms of, yeah. Maybe totally. moving away from something even valued then if you really quite value Yes, you could job. lose it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of thinking on then, if we're thinking about burnout, and I reckon there's going to be loads of people listening that just go, oh, that's me. I hadn't mm-hmm. realized that because so many people talk about burnout. I see it on Instagram posts, but I never yeah. see 
quality definitions. How do we recognize this? You know, it's straight on to the doing <laughs> rather yes. than what is burnout and how can we recognize it? How do we, we talk about in psychology sometimes our own footprints. So my burnout footprint might be different to yours, but oh, there might yes, be commonalities. But how Absolutely. do we begin to start to look at our own footprint? So yeah. coming on to your book then, The Resilient Life. So when we think about resilience, a lot of definitions today, sorry. Mm. Why is in resilience? Why is resilience important? Why do we need to think about this concept? Mm, it is. It is really important, especially during these times. At the same time, however, I know that some people bristle at the word resilience in some contexts. Yes. I've, yeah. I've actually been asked sometimes not to even use the word because some people feel that there's judgment inherent or a lot of pressure. Like you must be more resilient and kind of pushing it onto people and that that's not the way that I talk about it. It's not so much about you must be stronger and better. It's more in what ways can you really support yourself and and build a life around you and, and a way of being that makes you much more able to adapt and flow and respond to the really difficult things that naturally come along in life and especially these days. And so that's really for me, creating resilience and being resilient is not, it's not, and the research has shown this actually, it's not an individual quality. It's not like individual grit. It's actually a product of the resources around you and and how you interact with your life more so it is actually than anything that you do yourself or think as an individual i'm so glad you said that so much more eloquently than i would have that that's my kind of resilience so sometimes yeah. you'll see social media posts and it can come across as quite personalized and as, as you said then it's not about your personal qualities that you are not something if you are not coping or you're not resilient yeah it's about to me i'm just thinking that you know i quite like to create a, a kind of a baseline to support people's mental health helping them understand what they can be doing every day to stay well so yes so that when life throws the stuff and that's yeah. from reading your book the way that i saw resilience mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know how can we equip ourselves how can we understand more about physical health and mental health which will come on to you know there's different things you can do to take care of your mind and your body and the interaction yeah. between the two in order to equip you to be able yes. to try and navigate what life throws away like a pandemic <laughs> you know totally massive world events illnesses family issues loss grief all of the things that we've been navigating and I guess For me as well, one of the things that you talk about in your book, and I think it's really nice how you split them up, but then bring them back together is the role of physical health as well. Because I think sometimes people think of resilience as being this mental cognitive type construct, but actually a lot of your book is around physical health and physiology, which I guess is your background as well, isn't it? Yes. Um, So you can tell us a little bit more about the kind of the differences between kind of the mental health side, the emotional stuff versus the physical health and how people might be able to start to think a bit more about that. Yeah, it's so foundational. And I actually, when I wrote my first draft of the book, I actually put the physical things, sleep, nutrition, and movement, I actually put them first because they're so foundational. But yes. then my publisher, my the managing editor told me, ah, people probably won't want to read that first. So let's move yeah. it toward the end because it's one of those things where yes. everybody kind of knows it already. I, I certainly tried to bring fresh information from a fresh perspective, but it is one of those things that on some level we all know those things are important, but 
very typically struggle to actually implement them. And what I have learned in my, in my mental health journey, because I really started having challenges, significant challenges with my mental health in my twenties when I was in my residency training. So quite a long time ago. And I learned, even though I was already a doctor, but in my, through my own journey, I really learned that, that I had to firsthand pay attention or first of all, pay attention to those foundational things because everything was easier and everything was better. Like it's like for burnout, for example, there would be, for me, there wouldn't be much reason to go get a coach and help you navigate, excuse me, navigate your work environment. If you're sleeping five hours a night and have major insomnia, like that is a crisis if you're experiencing significant insomnia and that should actually be someone's first thing to pay attention to and work on because if you fix your sleep, your whole life will get better in every other aspect, everything from your weight to your mental health, to your performance at the job, to your relationships goes on and on and on. Just from getting a bit more sleep, you get so much mileage out of these fundamentals and that's why they're so important because they do affect literally everything. And one of the things I noticed in your book as well is it's so interesting. You said just what I was thinking then that people might be able to reel off a list. Oh, I need to do this and I hydrate and move my body. But the amount of patients that I see that don't do it or don't do it consistently or Mm -hmm. have the wrong idea about what moving your body is. Um, And one of the things that you've done in your book is just kind of deconstruct that because a lot of people have these kind of rigid constructs or frameworks for living that exercise is joining a gym and, you know, going to this certain club. And quite often those are the first things to go out of the window when you're tired, (laughs) overwhelmed. But, But, you know, we do need reminding of those things. So it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, that you would kind of had the order moved around, but it's so, so important isn't it and you can and there's many patients that I see that I was like actually if we just look at some basic logistics here mm-hmm. around what you do with your body how many people in the pandemic spent nine hours a day on zoom and didn't even move their body you know oh, right. doing like chair exercises stretches and things and immediately noticing those cognitive and physical benefits right? from doing yeah. that yes absolutely yeah, and, that, and you pointed out something that I wanted to mention which is so important and this is it's so effective in helping people to actually implement these habits. And it's helped me so much just to paying attention to how you feel. Because if you realize that going out for that 10-minute walk around the block during your lunch hour completely changes how your afternoon feels, and you but you watch out for it, right? Because otherwise people might miss it. And so I always tell people, notice how you feel before, because before you go for your walk, you are not going to want to go. You're going to hate the idea. You're going to be very tempted not to, but just get out the door. Just make it short, but Notice how you feel after, notice how you feel during, and that is what then continues to help it to become a habit. And that's why I do all those things because I feel so awful. If I'm not getting enough sleep, if I'm eating junk food, if I'm not moving in my day, it's like a whole other Susan. And I don't want to feel like that. So I do these things because they make me feel so much better. And they're simple. We call that scaling in psychology. You know, how are we going to know if what we're going to do is working? So we need to know how you feel before. Absolutely. Um, Oh, I love that. I didn't know that. It's it's quite hard to do it retrospectively, isn't it? Well, I can't remember how I was feeling before I left for the walk. And actually, it's so interesting you're talking about kind of behavioral patterns, habits, making things more um, habitual, our 
do the walk, make it part of my day. And, and I'm just thinking as well, I was watching the picture you'd put on Instagram the day in the snow. Things are getting colder. Some people love to go out, but a lot of people, especially over here in the UK, we want to hide. Oh, I don't want to go know, outside. It's, it's too cold, you know. I know. I know. I, yeah. I had that experience actually during the pandemic for the first year of it. I practiced medical psychotherapy um, in an adjacent province, which is much colder than where I live. And it was fascinating to see how as it turned into the winter months, people who had been experiencing depression and anxiety and who were experiencing a lot of relief from symptoms because of physical activity outside suddenly felt that they couldn't go outside. It was like they had a programming. And meanwhile, like I don't – I. I mean, we do you have Celsius there in the UK? I think you do, right? Yes, yeah. The Celsius. So it would be minus 18 sometimes. Where wow. I was. And <laughs> I would put on this this whole, I don't know what you call it, but the thing that basically you can only see your eyes. And I'd bundle up really warmly and I'd have really good yes. footwear so that I wouldn't be likely to slip, but I'd be out there. Um, you know, luckily it wasn't that cold very often, but I just, I feel I have to move even more. I have to be even more aware of it in the wintertime because of the lack of light because I have a tendency to get seasonal affective disorder. So get a kind of depression that's from lack of daylight. And so for me, it's even more important to get out. And so I really encourage you that if you have that idea that, oh, it's cold, like learn to dress well for it. Right. Learn to get those little ice cleats on your on your boots and get out there. Go for a family walk. Take hot chocolate with you in a in a little carry cup and you know change change the narrative that you have about about winter. I I love being outside in winter. And I love that. Change your narrative because we can get so stuck. (laughs) You know, we these nice rigid frameworks for living. Quite often they're what keep us safe. They keep the world predictable. So, you know, sometimes it's a bit scary to step outside them. But I love because I run a little community project here, getting people outside on the colder days. We notice it dropping down, but we've been chipping away at people going, just try. Come along one day when it's freezing cold, wrap up. And someone once said to me, there's no such thing as inappropriate weather, just inappropriate clothing. And that really stuck with me isn't that lovely it is um, so you know, true moving your body and the amount of people especially if you get toasty and warm in your office now in the UK some people are back in the offices majority of the time that they don't want to maybe be seen to leave the office and kind of getting around maybe stigma and people thinking you're going for a walk because you know it's about a mental health issue rather than making oh, something really normal and, and natural let's or, get or, out let's or excellent for productivity it's it's for Absolutely. peak performance I mean that's what yeah. I say to people right it's like if you want to perform at your job at your peak and this is also why organizations bring me in it's improve your sleep yes Eat foods that directly stimulate your brain like blueberries for example if you I always have frozen blueberries in my freezer and I throw them into a smoothie and they've been shown in studies to enhance your cognitive abilities and so same thing for if you take a walk at lunchtime or a walk first thing often if I have a really big virtual presentation that I have to give to thousands of people I yes. will go for a walk around the block, a really brisk one right before because I know it enhances my brain's performance. So spin it that way. If anybody, I mean, I would hope no one would make fun of anybody for going out for some fresh air, but it really is a sign of of well-being and being in tune with your body and being smart actually to do those sorts of things. It really is. And it's accessible. So one of the things that I also loved about your book is that the tips, we can do all of those things. You don't need anything extra. You don't have to download fancy apps in life or join certain classes. This is all stuff 
that we can all do and it's manageable so I'm thinking you know for some people they might get to the point where they are quite overwhelmed or they're in burnout and they might reach out get your book for example that sometimes things can seem quite overwhelming and where to Mm -hmm. start so what's really lovely is breaking it down into those small manageable chunks yes Um, and I love can you tell us about the ball on the front because one of my colleagues commented on that on the front cover of your book you have a ball that looks like it's coming towards you and I thought I have to ask you about where that came from where the idea came from to have a ball on the book yes (laughs) it was an idea that I had is just an association that I had in my mind with resilience. And I wanted, it's a, it's a bright yellow bouncing ball. It's quite happy, I think. And so it was sort of buoyant and hopeful. And uh, I actually was the one that found that, that image online when I was looking through some stock photography. And it was, uh, when I saw it, I was like, this is exactly what I was looking for. And, and what, what people sometimes notice about it is that the ball is bouncing forward. Yes. And so that is, that's meant to be that way as well. And that one of the things I actually heard someone else comment on this, and I thought it was so true about, about the last few years that we've been through is that often what we want is we want to quote, bounce back, right? To get back to how we were, to how life was. And, and we've all been changed. And adversity actually makes us more resilient. There is no resilience without adversity. So we are, whether we realize it or not, and I I actually would encourage you to do an inventory, whoever's listening, to think about how are you stronger? What have you learned? What new skills do you have? How are you better? And that you're you're not going to go back to being the same, but you can move forward in strength and better equipped and more experienced in life and, and with joy and hope. And that's really what that ball represents that's why I thought I know visually they can't see us but if people then look at your front cover I thought what's a good metaphor for them to take with it when that ball really struck me because somebody mm. I know had commented on it as well and I just thought I love that that it, mm. sometimes I think we can get really stuck in how we should be and mm. not evolving and I love the right. idea and that's my kind of resilience about developing in to something and moving forward and and sometimes we feel a bit guilty talking about the pandemic that it has been so dreadful in many ways but we've learned a lot and a lot of people mm-hmm. I do it as an exercise all the time in my clinics and say you know what are you proud of what did you think mm-hmm. you know that first lockdown we had in the UK how did you think you were going to cope look back now how did you cope what have you yeah. learned about yourself and I think that's really empowering for people don't you oh, to be able to go completely. I can move forward redefine yeah, and it's there it's there yes. if we look yeah. for it and to acknowledge yeah. it and honor it and celebrate it. And even with the with the pivot to virtual, that's one of the things that I'm really proud of because when the pandemic hit, I had pivoted at that point to full-time speaking work and then suddenly all my conferences were canceled. And, yes. and I was asked by a speaking agency that I work with whether for one of the large events if, for university, if I would be willing to consider a virtual event. And apparently a lot of speakers at that time were saying no. And with my heart in my throat, I said, yes, I'll do it. And, and just terror and so many new skills. And, and now it's something that I love. And I mean, look at you and I right now, right? We can see each other. We're on different sides of the ocean. And I have given presentations to people in Taiwan and Vietnam and Australia and Singapore, like all around the world because of this. And so 
remembering to celebrate the skills you've learned, the ways that you juggled all the changes and yeah, even the even the deeper compassion that you have and, and experience. Like I was saying to you also before we started recording that I don't have children, but I've been having a really, really tough experience with the health of my dog. And and part of how I even comfort myself, you know, in those sleepless nights or those times of just deep upset around it, that okay, I I really I understand parents on a whole new level right now because I have heard so often parents that I work with or friends talking about these things. And of course I had compassion, but now I, you know, I have deeper empathy and deeper ability to connect and understand. And we all have that as a result of the last couple of years or three years, I suppose. When I look back at trying to think, how do I move clinics online? (laughs) I never use Zoom or anything like that. The odd little Skype session. How do I get my 1990s whiteboard online? (laughs) It can be done. We draw everything and, and, you know, trying to use a trackpad to draw the humor. The thing that came out for me was that my patients thought it was so hilarious how awful I was at drawing on a trackpad. But the images stayed with them, which meant that it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were so funny. Which is so good for them too absolutely that we can kind of lean into it together now a couple of things that I've seen recently in your social media is something around perfectionism this inner critic which we've just touched on a little bit haven't we and that not letting one bad thing kind of define you and I was really interested in that and thinking what our listeners might be able to take from that that you know during the pandemic there may be things that we think oh I didn't do that well enough or in our everyday lives now tell us a little bit more about where that came from because that's a kind of a snippet from your book as well isn't it yes yes so there's a phenomenon with humans and it really helps to to be aware of this because otherwise we just fall into it unconsciously. And that's that as humans, and it probably has to do with our limbic system and needing to survive is that we will attend more to, or pay more attention to the negative things, the threats, uh, the bad things that happened in our day. Like you might have had a completely fine work day, maybe even some good things happen. But if there was a piece of bad news that you got or some criticism or something really went poorly in a meeting on the en- at the end of your day, that is what you are likely to remember. That's probably what you're likely to talk to your spouse about. That's maybe what you're going to think uh, when you lie in bed at night before going to sleep. And you may even walk around with kind of a, a pit in your stomach or, or anxiety in your chest because of that one thing that happened. And it's not too minimize that or dismiss that it happened, but to be aware that as humans, we do tend to get stuck on those negative things, especially if we're struggling. If we have a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression, we will tend to fixate. And so we know, and this actually, what I, what I teach, sorry, I'll do that again. What I teach is that what Dr. Martin Seligman found, and he's the, the founder of the field of positive psychology he found yes. that people who were suffering from depression, I believe he did it in students, that if they just did this simple little exercise at the end of their day called what went well, where they intentionally would go back and think of three things that went well. And, and I encourage you to do that, for example, with your workday. So if you're commuting, if you're in a hybrid situation or, or you're working in person somewhere on your way back home, make it a habit to look back over your day and think, think of three things that went well, look for them 
And I actually do it at bed every night. I have my little bedtime prayer routine that I do. And I always start it as kind of a gratitude practice of searching through my day for three good things. And we know from the research that if you do that, it significantly increases your mood over the long term. And it also, not only for moderate depression, helps people to get out of depression, but also prevents it coming back. And the the after effects last for months, even if you only do this exercise for a period of time. But I encourage you to just have it be part of your life. It's very easy and quick to do too. And again, like you were saying, Tara, there's you don't need anything. (laughs) Like you don't need any gadgets. You don't need to write it down. Some people like writing it down, but eh, just I just do it in my head. And I and I think of those things. I picture them in my mind. It's a great way to shift your mind also before going to sleep. Absolutely. So, you know, giving you something to focus on, but it's not moving into distraction, which psychologists try to avoid. You know, we want yes. to, to kind of sit with things, but we yes. don't often. I'm just thinking that when you think about from a psychological perspective, we never leave positive reviews for restaurants. We tend to go on when we're a bit more aggrieved, don't we? And the same thing can happen with our day. You know, we don't go, yeah. actually, do you know what have I done well today? I'm rubbish at that. I've just realized I don't think I ever sit and think, oh, what have I done this week or today to do a bit oh, more reflection so time? Good. I it's love that so idea good. of making it habitual as well every yeah. day, not just now and again. Yeah. Um, because that leads me on to something else you said recently <laughs> as well in social media about, you know, not losing yourself in the pursuit of success. Because I'm wondering if that also ties in with the ability to then forget what's going well when we might have, it may be a really valued end goal, maybe something we are working towards, you know, writing a book, for example. There may yeah. be times when that's, you know, dominating, getting it finished, but maybe yeah. taking that time to celebrate the small things on the way. Yeah. And it has to do with this foundational piece that we've been talking yes. about in terms of yeah. what are the foundational things of our lives. And and I talk in the book, actually, I think it was in the the chapter on how to avoid or improve stress and overwhelm is to know what your what your top priorities are in your life yes. for yourself. This is a list I would say top 4 in a like in order and you get to make this list no one else gets to tell you what's on this list and it's very very helpful to be aware of what those things are and it can be anything it could be your painting it could be your partner it could be your sleep your health it could be some hobby that you really enjoy it could be time with your children time by yourself. Anything that you want can go on this list. And the nature of life, I've observed it for so long. It's it's quite strange. It's like a natural law that the things that matter most to us about ourselves or in our lives are the things that tend to most easily get pushed aside by the urgent, by all the practical things in life that we have to get done. Yeah. And so... And, and you might not want to even focus on four things. I'm speaking to the listener, of course. You might you might just want to have one thing that's core to who you are, that's really, really important to you, that you want to nurture and take care of, even though it's a really, really busy season. And, and what is that thing for you? Like for me, one of the absolutely most foundational things would be my daily walk. That that would be basically almost the last thing to go for me. Yeah. And it's a, it's time for myself. I listen to podcasts that I really enjoy that aren't work-related, and it's my time. And I also know how good it is for my mental health, but that is something that I, even in the dark in the evening, I'll go up a safe street and even go back and forth in the same block if I have to. That's something that helps me maintain my connection to myself and my well-being that I can do pretty much anywhere, anytime. And so what does that look like for you? What is the thing for you or the things? 
that even in a really, really very busy, high pressure time, especially over the holidays, depending on when this will air, you know, what is, what is that thing or those things that you just really will choose to protect and prioritize and that will help you stay connected to yourself and what matters and you will be less likely to lose yourself in everything. And I'm just thinking, actually, that's a really good nugget of advice, isn't it? For the fact that at the moment, the world is continually throwing us a lot of stuff. So we are continually facing adversity. I'm not sure many people had even heard of the word prior to the pandemic. But Mm. we also know from research as well that just that rhythmic movement, one foot in front of the other, especially if you can do that in nature, if that's possible as well, does help you process emotions in a different way Mm -hmm. Um, and also as well kind of helping you with decision making and creativity problem solving all of that can be enhanced can't it yes yeah yeah, there's really exciting research herbert benson he's he unfortunately passed away this year but herbert herbert benson so he's the one that from harvard the cardiologist that discovered the inwired relaxation response in our bodies he also did some research i can't remember he wrote a book about this how i wish i could remember what it was called but about how walking and other kinds of rhythmic activities like that. It can also be creative activities that yes, your your yeah. brain will problem solve in the background often. And so you'll come up with solutions without even thinking about them. <laughs> They'll just come into your mind after and, and yes, yeah, so good for us. It, it achieves so much. It's not a waste of time, not in the slightest. So I always say to people, walking, it's a one-stop shop. <laughs> you yeah. can have all these fantastic things. You can look after your body, you can connect with people or yourself, depending on yeah. what you need. I love that idea. We're both dog owners and I, I chatted oh, to someone yeah. else on a podcast who's a dog owner and we were just like, there's so many benefits of being outside, especially if you have a, a furry companion with you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they just get us, don't they? <laughs> they know what we're feeling, what we're thinking. So if people have had a taster already, I'm sure there'll be people going, so how do I get more of Susan? How do I feel? kind of hear more. If people want to find your book, let's start with that. Where can they sure. find it? How can they get hold of this? Well, assuming that, well, I don't know where your listeners are. I know that the ebook for sure is available worldwide. I had a reader in Japan contact me recently. So oh, I know fantastic. that the, yeah, the Kindle yes. ebook is available worldwide on Amazon in English. It hasn't been translated yet. The audiobook will be coming out next year. Uh, if you want to learn more about the book itself, you can go to my website about the book, my webpage, yeah. theresilientlifebook.com. And then my website itself, if you want to learn more about what I do, is Thrive liveworklive.com. And of course, I'm on social, I'm on everything, but tip, TikTok, I haven't, <laughs> haven't taken that leap yet. But then I love, I, <laughs> I love meeting people on, on social. I'm very active. I handle all my social accounts myself. So if you send me a DM, you will get me and I will answer you. So it's at Dr. Susan Bialy. And, uh, and you can find those two on my, on my website as well. It has social links. So. So I'll make sure I put all these in the show notes as well. Oh, for yes. And what we can do is um, because they're kind of live, we can edit them when your um, audio book is out as well. We can then add the link into that as well. So I always ask every guest my little signature move, which I realized recently <laughs> makes me show my age because not everybody of a certain generation knows what that means. But for anyone over 40, signature move, is there one nugget? I know we've had so much from you today, but one little piece advice on how to cope with adversity, one resilient takeaway that you could leave us with? Mm. I would say the number one thing is to ask yourself, how am I taking care of myself? What am I doing? And then out of that, how can I do one thing 
that would help me to take better care of myself. I think if you're if you're constantly asking that question, it doesn't make you selfish. Actually, it'll make you ha- have more capacity to serve other people. But just constantly thinking like what what can I do to support myself? How can I take care of myself? Especially right now, if things are really, really hard and is one thing, what would be the one thing that would have the most impact? Would it be sleeping better? Would it be remembering to eat? Would it be that walk for you? Because we are all different. What would it be right now? And then to give yourself permission to do it because it is so important, not just for you, but also for everyone around you. I'll say again, it's not selfish. It's, it's the biggest gift you can actually give to those around you is taking really good care of yourself so that you can show really show up for others. That's the way to do it, really. I love that. And I love the fact you've addressed that sometimes that guilt monster can come in and mm-hmm. go, I shouldn't do or I don't deserve to. And I guess mm-hmm. if you're kind of in an industry where you're helping people like we are as well, that mm-hmm. we need to be able to give and give effectively, don't we, yeah. to do our job. So that's certainly yeah. going to stay with me because I don't think I do that enough at times. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> you probably evening, don't. It's I will so go. important. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. It's, it's the- evening in the UK at the moment. So I will be going to bed tonight to do that. I know you're just starting your day. <laughs> um, but I will be going to bed tonight making that time to think of three things just today <laughs> and I wonder how long it'll take me to come up with them the first time that I do it and um, Susan thank very you like. so much for coming on um it's been an absolute treat what a lovely end to my Monday <laughs> to be able to talk with you again <laughs> and, and less so pressure much. than the radio so we can be a little bit more Oh, totally. Much more than the the BBC. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so Mm. much. Thank you, Tara. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you one step at a time.